0: Hey, thank you, Richard. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. My name is Dustin, and I get to be the lead pastor here. If you would, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Uh, We're looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. If you don't have a print Bible in front of you, grab one of those blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room and turn to page 976. We are in Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. And uh, welcome uh, to our church. Uh, friends, Here the word of the Lord to us out of Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through 39. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves of the fish, and having given thanks, he broke it and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven basketfuls of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadon. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in your lap? Father, we thank you and we wonder at your compassion towards us, as sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of our Savior Jesus. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus' compassion And become more and more like him as we imitate him. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, Do you know a truly, like a truly selfless person? Uh, A person, you know, who's like willing to do whatever it takes, no matter how inconvenient it may be. Uh, You know, to me it just seems like there are just a few people who arise in our lives, you know, who take on more than their fair share Uh, You don't have to conjole or manipulate them. They're just a genuinely selfless person. Do you know anybody like that? Um, If you don't, I know a guy who's going to Immigrant Lake later this afternoon uh, who would love your company, winterizing RVs. Uh, But these kinds of selfless people are often our favorite people, aren't they? I mean, when you really get to know somebody who's genuinely selfless, uh, they carry with them something of the virtue Uh, something of the character of God within them, right? Because they resemble, they remind us of what God's character is really like, genuinely selfless, full of compassion and mercy. Uh, Well, you know, when it comes to thinking about these sort of favorite people, uh, I can't help but think, of course, of my favorite person to talk about of all time, Jesus. Jesus is my favorite person. He's also my favorite topic to ever talk about. And the amazing thing is you study the life of Jesus, even if you're not a Christian. If you read the teachings of Jesus and his auto or his biographies, all four of them, you realize Jesus is always fresh, he's always surprising, and he's always full of compassion, and he's always selfless. So as we read Matthew 15 this morning, if you look down in your lap, especially verse 32, it should surprise us a little bit when the gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus is unwilling to do something, right? Because we think of Jesus as always selfless. But what is it that Jesus is not willing to do? In fact, in the Greek, he says, I will not. Not in the sense that I will not do something in the future, but in the sense that I will, as in I wish I purpose not to do something. Well, what is it that Jesus is sort of unbending about? What is it that he's unwilling to do? Well, notice what he says in Matthew 15, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. You see, what Jesus is unwilling to do is to send us on our way without what we need. Jesus is unwilling to send us away hungry and in need. And so Jesus calls his disciples together and says, do not neglect the needs of the people around you. I am unwilling to send them away without what they need. You know, this reminds me of what that great uh, Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, said. Uh, he has a wonderful little short book called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Uh, it was written in the early 1900s. And uh, anyway, B.B. Warfield, uh, you Now can, you can find the book online. It's free. Uh, it's, it's just a PDF now. Uh, but B.B. Warfield, in The Emotional Life of Our Lord, wrote these words. He said, The emotion which, which we should naturally expect to find most attributed to Jesus, whose whole life was a mission of mercy, whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence, I said it was written in the 1900s, right? Beneficence, that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as going through the land doing good, and is no doubt compassion. If you want to summarize the emotional life of Jesus, you could find no better word than compassion. You know, last week, uh, and we started the Lighting the Way series, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody join me this week in the Ephraim Co-op? Who who joined me in the daily devotional? Great job. Way to take that next step in your discipleship. Well, last week, we looked at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you were doing our daily devotional, you would have read through the entire Sermon on the Mount each day this week. Uh, And really, uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 15, if you go to verse 29, uh, now we're back to Jesus' teaching. And where is he? Look at verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is now in a different region, and he goes where? He goes up on a mountain, and he does what? He sits down. This should remind you of the Sermon on the Mount, right, where Jesus goes up on a mountain and he sits down. But unlike last week when Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount and does teachings, here we're presented With Jesus not sort of in uh, the land of Israel, but sort of on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory. Uh, He's hanging out with people who are not his ethnic or religious group. He's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he sits down on a mountain, and who would arrive but great crowds? And they bring with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others And in verse uh, 30, it says they put him at his feet, but literally in in Greek, it actually says they cast them down at his feet. They cast these people at his feet. So instead of necessarily just uh, preaching, Jesus is now healing people and performing incredible miracles. And of course, look at verse 31, what happens? They wonder because Jesus performs miracles. They see the mute speaking, the crippled healed, the lame walking, and the blind seeing And these Gentile people, these non-Jewish people, these people of other religions and faith, they realize that Jesus is something unlike they've ever known before, and who do they glorify? They glorify the God of Israel. They start to see who God truly is. He's not one of a pantheon, he's the one true God, the God of Israel. So this morning, uh, what I want us to focus on is really this image of the compassion of Jesus. And I I bring this up because here's my my belief. The way that you and I become compassionate people uh, is not necessarily just by thinking about compassion. The way that you and I become compassionate people is actually by beholding the compassion of Jesus. It's actually by beholding and contemplating the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ who is full of compassion towards us. And what you and I are called to do is is to immerse ourselves in the presence of God and to imitate his life, right? Because the way that we become who we are meant to be is not just by an intellectual ascent, right? It's not just by our intellect. It's by immersion and imitation. So as we immerse ourselves in the presence of Jesus this morning, I want us to beginning to think of how are we imitating that same compassion. So let's go to this the wonder of compassion. I love that the crowd wonders at Jesus, that he's healing people. So uh, this morning, my my simple three-part outline is we're going to look at the wonder of Jesus's compassion, the wonder of Jesus's people, and then the wonder of Jesus's miracles. So let's, let's wonder for just a second on Jesus's compassion. And this is something that Richard White, my, my mentor, uh, back in North Carolina, really taught me about this passage. Because if you look in verses 29 through uh, 31, you may be thinking this sounds like a really fun camping trip. But just imagine for just a second, okay? Just let's do a thought experiment. Let's say, who, who likes camping? Let me just start off with that. Who likes to go camping? Okay, put your hands up. Who doesn't like to go camping? All right, I'm talking to you people, okay? You ready? For whether you like camping or not, Imagine this simple thought experiment, okay? Imagine you and your entire family go camping, particularly the people who don't like camping, all right? And now, regardless of your age or your physical ability, you are going camping on a three-day camping trip with your family, So, you know, you pack up your vehicle, you drive hours away, you're out in the Oregon Outback for some undisclosed reason, you know, someone else other than you chose the location, and so you open up the back of your your car, and uh, you're out in the Oregon Outback, you're on a three-day camping trip, and you open up the trunk, and guess what? When the trunk opens, you forgot the cooler of food. You have no food. And so all you have on this camping trip is, you know, those little like Cheez-It cracker things that you keep in your dashboard for homeless people, and then a bag of apples that you forgot to bring into the kitchen last week when you went to Fred Meyers. And then as you keep going, you realize that the box of all of the outdoor camping material that you were supposed to pack, you also left it on the driveway. So you have no insect repellent. And then when it comes to the campsite, imagine it was one of those, you know, like primitive campsites where it doesn't have a shower facility. Okay, and then as you go to sleep that night, hungry and a little cold and not a little stinky and grumpy, you wake up the next morning early because you're camping and you realize you've got two more days to go. Oh, and just one more thing in this thought experiment. When you get to the campsite, there's actually like 8,000 people who also went camping with you who also forgot all of their food and also have crying babies. So after that third day, when you smelled bad and you were hangry, right? You know what hangry is? What's hangry? (laughs) Hungry and angry, right? There are no Snickers around to keep you from being hangry. You ate those your first day. What prevailing emotion do you think would define you? After three days of being hungry, smelly, stinky, and everywhere you look, you see a sea of humanity. (laughs) Well, if you're anything like me, I would be angry, upset, annoyed, emotionally checked out. And I would probably lack an emotion called compassion. (laughs) When I look at a sea of 8,000 people who also can't find the outhouse because, wait, there isn't one. And yet, if you go to Matthew 15, this is the scenario that we find ourselves in. There's 4,000 men plus the women and the children. It's a group of people of all kind of different ages. It's full of people who are crippled, uh, full of people who can't speak. It's the disability community. And where are they? They're in the middle of nowhere. They're in a desolate place. There is no food. There are no outhouses. And nobody thought to bring food because they didn't think they were going to be here this whole time. And whereas we would be grumpy, sort of like the disciples in the story. Did you catch that? Jesus is like, we should feed them. And they're like, not this again. Jesus, just send them away. They're Gentiles. Gross. Send them away. After those three days of that awful camping trip, now look at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Uh, Friends, one of the great things that we get to do as Christians, and the reason we try to help light the way back to the Father, one of the great things that you and I, we get to do is tell people not just that Jesus is God, come into human form to die for our sins, That's glorious and that's amazing. But one of the beautiful things that we get to do as Christians is to testify and to witness to the compassion of God. You know what God is like? He is like a guy three days in to the worst camping trip you could ever imagine. And he's still full of compassion and love for people. I mean, think about that, the God that created the universe and your toenails, if you have them, who created calculus, also is rich and overwhelmingly beautiful in his compassion. And so part of what we do when we light the way back to the Father is not just tell people, hey, shape up because, you know, you need to repent and come to God. Now, that's part of the gospel message, but there's a beautiful aspect to the gospel where you and I, we remind people that this is what God is like. You know, an old pastor once said, uh, God has not provided an airtight argument for the existence of God, but he has provided an airtight person. And that person is Jesus of Nazareth, full of compassion. And friends, part of what it means to be a person of faith is to believe, and this is important, part of what it means to be a person of faith is to believe that that compassion that is in God goes to you. And notice, I didn't say y'all. I'm saying you, as an individual. That is how God relates to you, is full of compassion. And Jesus is unwilling to send you on your way with what you need, without what you have. I mean, don't you love that Jesus says, I'm unwilling to send them away. That's this compassion. So it's the wonder of Jesus's compassion. You know, let's look at the wonder for just a second of this community of people, right? The wonder of Jesus's people. And right there, we see in verse 30 that great crowds come to him. Now, what's surprising to us about the story, you know, if you step back in the Gospel of Matthew, is just a few chapters earlier, Jesus had fed five thousand people. Except Jesus, he had fed five thousand people in the land of Israel. And if you know your Bibles and if you can play context clues, when Jesus feeds the original five thousand, in a few chapters earlier than this, they are left with how many basketfuls of food? Anybody remember? It's twelve. Why do you think it was 12? Well, I think it was 12 because it literally happened. But what do you think that was symbolic of? The 12 tribes of Israel, that Jesus has come to be the light of the world, but first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So he's got his mission, and so he feeds the 12 tribes miraculously. But if you look in chapter 15, we start to see this unfolding, beautiful aspect of the gospel, that Jesus has not just come for the house of David, but for all people groups and all nations. And so right there in chapter 15, Jesus meets a Canaanite woman, and he says that she has incredible faith. And then we see right here, after this incredible interaction with this woman who shouldn't be a believer, who ends up becoming a believer, Jesus then turns around and gives his followers an object lesson. And this time, in the realm of the Gentiles on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, now with great crowds of people, Jesus provides For those people. Except this time he has seven basketfuls of food, perhaps pointing us to completion, that Jesus has come for all nations. Uh, This is something that Christian commentators and pastors have pointed out uh, for almost 1,500 years. It seems that Jesus is showing us in the first feeding of the 5,000 that he is here for the house of Israel and in the second feeding here for all the peoples, signifying completion. But that's not just the only surprising group of people that Jesus is gathering. I mean, even the disciples, this may explain why they don't want to feed the crowds, because it's a surprising group of people. But notice, though, that within this group of people, there is a subgroup of people. Right there in verse 30, the great crowds come to him, and they bring with them whom? People who are lame, that is, they can't walk, or maybe their arms don't work. People who are blind, the crippled, that would refer just to the lower legs. And then the mute, the mute. Uh, which are people who cannot speak. And then if that doesn't cover it, many others, meaning people of various kinds of disabilities and physical ailments. And this is consistent with how the Gospels talk about physical disabilities. Sometimes uh, people have uh, demonic possession in the Gospels, and that manifests itself with physical disabilities but oftentimes, the Gospels will distinguish between someone who's demonically oppressed and someone who has a physical disability. And so this is where we're starting to see that. There's no mention of uh, demonic oppression in these. It's just people of different kind of physical ailments. Perhaps they were born this way or they were injured later on in life. But the point is, these are groups of people that humanity has typically looked past or overlooked. Except now, the Gentiles are bringing this sort of ragtag group of people around Jesus. And the disciples are looking around, and they're like, these are not the people we want to associate with on a lot of levels. Not only are they physically disabled, they're also Gentiles. And so this becomes part of the wonder of Jesus. This is why he's always so fresh. Because the people that Jesus gathers around him, it's always surprising to us, isn't it? It's never quite who we think it should be. See verse 31, it says they wondered because Jesus starts to heal these people. And then it finishes in verse 31 that they glorified the God of Israel. Many commentators think that uh, is a specific reference to why it is a gentile group of people because they have to specify that they are worshiping not just you know the gods of their people but actually the one true god the god of israel so as we wonder about this interesting group of people that jesus is gathering you know it starts to sort of percolate in our minds what kind of people are we gathering with I mean, if you want to be a believer in Jesus and you f- claim to follow him, right, and I hope that many of us uh, want to be like that, we want to imitate the life of Jesus, one of those natural questions then is we step back and we say, Does things in my, do the things in my life resemble anything like the things of Jesus' life? Or do the people that Jesus loved, are they even in my purview, You know, Jesus is talking to religious people about this same group of people, and you may know the story in Luke, and Jesus says, well, if you throw a party, don't just invite people of your same socioeconomic status. You know why? Why does he say not to do that? He says, because they're just going to turn around and invite you, and you're going to stay in your same socioeconomic status. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. You know why the kingdom of God doesn't work like that? You know why you don't stay in your same socioeconomic status? Because Jesus didn't. Jesus, from the glories of heaven came down and he condescended in the greatest sense of that word. He came down and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And then when he was born, he entered into Galilee. Even the disciples knew that was a bad neighborhood. And then he associated with tax collectors and prostitutes and people who were sinners. And then when he preaches, crippled people, lame people, mute people, Gentile women, they gather around him. It's the wonder of Jesus' people. Jesus is gathering a ragtag group of people who instead of pride exhibit true humility. And of course, Jesus gathers them and he heals them. But We can never forget that Jesus' ministry was to instill the kingdom and its principles into a group of men called the Apostles who then produced the New Testament, and they compel you and I as the church to continue the mission. So what do we see? How are we supposed to apply this? Well, I would encourage you to consider the group of people with which you associate with. You know, is it possible that God is calling you to expand your group of people that you are willing to let in? You know, last week I challenged everybody to take that next step In their discipleship. So for some of you, it was doing the Ephraim Co-op. I'm very proud of you. Great job. And then uh, it was really, really encouraging as your pastor to realize earlier this past week that all of the lamplighter gifts and more (laughs) were purchased like that, like that. And that's so beautiful. And we have even more stories of people in our congregation being incredibly generous with their time and our treasures. But is it possible though, friend, that now the next step for you is to see your dinner table as the next step, where you can invite a different group of people, a group of people or a person that's often easily overlooked. I mean, if Jesus enters our world and he sees those who are left out, and he brings them into his fellowship and he has compassion on them and is unwilling to send them away, hungry and in need, what kind of people ought we to be? You know, last week I suggested to you that there's probably nothing more sacred in your home than your table, right? And you'll probably remember this, right? But, you know, what, what did God create Adam and Eve to do? Who can remember? All, here's, a, here's, a, here's a truism, you ready? All good theology starts in Genesis, okay? All good theology starts in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they were created to do what? Be naked gardeners, right? yeah right? They were gardeners, right? And they had a garden. And gardens mean what? Food. And food means what? A table. And a table means what? Fellowship. Belonging. And then Jesus says, you all have tables. When you throw parties, invite a different kind of group of people into your homes. And then you'll testify. And in this story, Jesus sets a feast for a very surprising group of people, and he performs a miracle. There's baskets full of extra food because Jesus is full of compassion, and he's full of generosity. So as we finish up, um, you know, earlier this morning we sang probably my favorite hymn of all time, Joy to the World, and uh, it's a wonderful hymn, it's based on Psalm 98, But in Psalm uh, 98, you know, which Joy to the World is sort of based on, we had our call to worship from Psalm 98. Uh, You know, there's this line that you probably can think of, but you probably can't call to mind. And it's in stanza three, which is where you put all the weird lines for some reason in a hymn that no one remembers. But in stanza three, this is my favorite line of any hymn of all time. And it goes like this. He comes to make... His blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What's that talking about? Well, if you know the story of the Bible, God created a beautiful world It was meant to reflect his glory and his love and his compassion. But that world was broken by sin. But because God is full of compassion and mercy, he set about a plan of redemption to redeem this broken world. And he sent his son to live in this broken world so that he could undo the effects of the fall. And really, friends, that's what a miracle really is. You know, what Jesus, you know why Jesus does miracles? It's not some sort of like pie-in-the-sky fake myth. Miracles are temporary reversals of the fall. Because of the fall, people are crippled. And because of the fall, we die. And because of the fall, we are broken. And what does Jesus do in the miracles? He undoes the effects of the fall. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wherever the curse of sin and death covers this world, he comes to undo even that. Even death itself bows down to the king of kings. So why does Jesus miraculously create food? Because want and a lack of belonging are the effects of the fall. Adam and Eve, they lost fellowship with God. They lost a place at the table. But he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so Jesus takes bread and he Eucharists it. He gives thanks for it. And he invites all people to the table. Now friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the compassion of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would more and more imitate that kind of compassion. Lord, that we really would light the way. Back to the Father. Uh, Lord, for those of us who uh, lack right now, Lord, we know that at your table you give us everything that we need. In the Holy Spirit, we ask that we would become more and more the hands and the feet of Jesus in our world. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.